This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by snow falling from the sky since before you were born. To get $50 off your first three inches of snow, go to snowfall.com and use the promo code FOOL at checkout. It's Wednesday, February 20th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Snow is falling from the sky. Was that was that real? Is that a real link? <laughs> you know what? Go to snowfall.com. I am going to do that right after we finish taping. Well, you're going to get a couple bucks off the first couple inches of snow. We got it for free. Uh, schools closed everywhere in the D.C. area. I think the federal government is closed as well. But no, not here. Not here at Market Fuller. Not as long as the intrepid Dan Boyd, producer extraordinaire, is behind the glass. And uh, as long as David Kretzman continues to live geographically close to the office, you're not moving anytime soon, are you? Absolutely not. <laughs> if, if I get this gig for the one or two, you know, snow <laughs> episodes a year, I'm Look, totally staying. Here. I like talking to you, even when it's not a situation where snow is falling and, <laughs> well, and I appreciate and that. roads are shut down and all that sort of thing. Um, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. Uh, stop me if you've heard this before, but an executive is leaving Tesla. Um, we'll get to both of those. Let's start, though, in the restaurant industry. Texas Roadhouse, it looked like a good fourth quarter. I mean, same store sales for Texas Roadhouse um, at the franchise restaurants were nearly 5%. At the company owned restaurants, it was about 5.5%. And in this environment, coming off of the year that the restaurant industry just had, you'd think people would throw them a parade. I know, and I feel like a broken clock talking about Texas Roadhouse the past couple of years because the restaurant industry in the U.S. has been in a funk for probably close to three years now. But Texas Roadhouse has consistently been one of the top performers. I think on the public market level, really the only company that matches or exceeds Texas Roadhouse is probably Domino's. But Texas Roadhouse this quarter, like you mentioned, comps at their company-owned stores up over five and a half percent, and so far in the first quarter, we're about 55 days into the first quarter of 2019. Those comps are up six percent. So, in a time when a lot of restaurants are struggling, Texas Roadhouse continues to put up really impressive traffic numbers, and they're not doing it with gimmicky sales or lowering prices to lure people in. They're they're continuing to offer a consistent quality experience, quality food, uh, and and that's a formula that's worked really well for them now. And this was their 36th consecutive quarter of comp growth, so they've really had an impressive track record over the past decade. And I think part of the reason that the the stock is selling off a bit today, or we're not seeing a huge reaction from from the market. It's the guidance for 2019 was good, but it was it was vague. They just said that they expect positive same store sales growth rather than putting up you know maybe we expect three to five percent same store sales growth, which would be more impressive. But I think they'll they'll get there. This management team, I think, typically will keep things close to the vest. They're 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 not going to be too flamboyant out there when it comes to guidance. And the stock is also on the pricier side for for a restaurant. Like I think the the stock does deserve a premium, but they're trading for twenty eight to thirty times earnings right now, which is a lofty multiple. So. With somewhat vague guidance, earnings growth was also a little bit pared back for this most recent fourth quarter, just because of higher labor costs and tax issues and things like that. So, 
All in all, though, I think if you're a Texas Roadhouse investor, including myself, I, I think you continue to feel really good about uh, the approach of this management team and the prospects of the company. Just a slow and steady, reliable formula for growth. Yeah, I think that, um, and you mentioned Domino's, and yes, Domino's is a competitor in the sense that. The, they're just, all restaurants are competing with each other on some level, and obviously, in the case of Domino's, they're not a restaurant per se, but they're certainly in the food business. Um, that being said, I completely agree about the management team at Texas Roadhouse, and in some ways, I think of this restaurant and this management team as being one to watch, even if you don't own the stock. Because I think that it's probably an overstatement to say that Texas Roadhouse is a bellwether within the industry. I guess I'd put it this way. If Texas Roadhouse starts to have meaningful problems, then I think that spells even more trouble for the restaurant industry. Yeah, they they've been a shining jewel in in the restaurant space. I mean, Chipotle is sort of making a comeback now, but they still have their fair share of issues to to work through. CEO Brian Nickel is still in the early stages of his tenure at Chipotle, but when you look at the past decade, it's really just been Domino's and Texas Roadhouse when you're looking at consistent performance quarter in and year quarter in quarter out, year in year out. So yeah, I agree if Texas Roadhouse starts to hit some headwinds, then you really have to Wonder, man, what does that mean for the rest of the restaurant industry, which is already <laughs> facing some issues uh, over the past few years? So, up to this point, I mean, they're they're seeing stronger growth. It sounds like so far in 2019. So I think that bodes well for the rest of the year for the company and for shareholders. But we'll just have to see uh, see where things go. I mean, for now, they're they're still focusing on the core Texas Roadhouse concept. They have close to 600 restaurants. Uh, they'll they'll cross that 600 restaurant mark sometime this year. They're still in the very early stages. Of uh, testing out that Bubba's 33 concept, which is kind of like a, a family sports bar type uh, dining environment, uh, but the vast majority of the new locations that they're opening are Texas Roadhouse locations. They're expecting to open about 33 Texas Roadhouse locations in 2019, and maybe four Bubba's 33 locations. So the focus continues to be on that Texas Roadhouse concept. And we still haven't gotten to the Bubba's 33, which is in Glen Burnie, Maryland. We got to get up there at some point. Not oh, I didn't. I didn't know there was one that close. I thought it was in Ohio. No, 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 no. There is. There is one in Glen Burnie, Maryland. So not too far from uh, where we are. But uh, given the road conditions, we're not going today. Not today. But at some point, we'll get out there. Research. Um, so, once again, Tesla, uh, the C-suite revolving door continues. In this case, it is uh, the general counsel, Dane Batswinkas, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing uh, the last name correctly, um, who has been the general counsel at Tesla for exactly two months. <laughs> so, if you're like, hey, wait, didn't the general counsel just leave two months ago? Yes, and now this one is leaving. And what's even slightly more troubling to me about this is um, this general counsel did not come out of left field to join Tesla. Um, he was with the consulting law firm that Tesla uses. So, this is someone who presumably had maybe not as close a look at how Elon Musk and his executive team operate, but certainly had some level of familiarity and still. Two months inside of Tesla, decided nope, I got to get out of here, and goes back to the law firm. And it's also maybe 
one element that makes this a little more concerning is that he was brought in to help resolve kind of the fiasco that happened with Elon Musk and his his Twitter debacle, where Elon Musk was basically tweeting out guidance or tweeting out that the company is looking to to get acquired and that he has you know funding secured and all that stuff. And uh, this this lawyer who came in, I'm, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name. You do a better job at that as host, Chris. But he came in to help bring about that settlement with the SEC, where Elon Musk paid a $20 million fine. He agreed to step down as chairman for three years. So for uh, for him to step down as general counsel just a couple months after reaching that settlement, kind of a head scratcher, a little bit puzzling. And then it's ironic, or I don't know if it's at all related, but. Uh, Within the past 24 hours, Musk tweeted that uh, Tesla will make 500,000 cars this year. And then he uh, subsequently, a few hours later, uh, clarified saying, No, what I actually meant to say was that we'll deliver close to uh, 400,000 vehicles in 2019, which is comparable to the guidance he had already put out, but we'll make 500,000 cars. So a distinction between making vehicles versus delivering vehicles. So anyway, Musk kind of uh, treading close to the line there as far as like giving guidance or you know financial commentary on Twitter that could potentially move the stock. So has Musk learned his lesson? I think that's kind of the eternal question when it comes to him and Twitter, and I don't think that's totally been solved yet. I don't think it has, and it's you know it's got to be a little troubling for shareholders in this regard. Um, part of that SEC agreement was that you know. He had said, "Well, I'm. We're going to have someone monitoring my tweets, you know, presumably before they go out, not after." Um, and the SEC is not known for its sense of humor. <laughs> the SEC is not messing around, and so there was the whole back and forth between the agreement the last time around. And you have to assume that if he gets in trouble with the SEC again, it's going to be dramatically worse. It, it, it's going to be dramatically more punitive, whether you know, and put aside the the fine that he has to pay because he's got the money he can pay that. But um, you have to wonder what it's going to look like if he continues to go down this road of you know causing. It's one thing to be like, okay, um, the chief financial officer is leaving or something like this. I don't know. I think anytime you get a general counsel. And apparently, someone with the company was quoted as saying, "Well, it was you know, it was a cultural fit. He didn't have a good cultural fit with the company. I don't know. That's that sounds like code for he couldn't stand working with Elon Musk. I could very easily be wrong about that. But this this is one of those things that um, not all executive turnover is equal, and this one appears to be." Um, more troubling than others. Yeah, I think working with Elon Musk, it's safe to say that it's not a, a binary uh, spectrum where you either love working with him or you hate it, or you just uh, either it works really well or it just doesn't work at all. Uh, so, as a result, you're seeing this uh, revolving door on on the executive level at Tesla. But really, at the end of the day, for for Tesla, what what Matters is are they are they making and delivering these vehicles and they are seeing some pretty clear progress. Uh, the the last couple quarters of 2018, you're seeing what really looks like almost exponential growth when you're looking at the company's history of quarterly vehicle deliveries. It really spiked up toward the end of 2018, and if they can hit those kind of revised targets that Musk tweeted out over the past day, that that would be. Uh, 
impressive growth, almost doubling or potentially more than doubling what they did in 2018. So, from a fundamental perspective, when it comes to making vehicles, which is what Tesla needs to do to survive uh, as a standalone entity, they are making some progress. But then they have issues with the the tax rebate being uh, taken off the table, uh, you know, cutting some of the workforce, adjusting the prices lower. There are a bunch of different variables where. Will they be able to produce the Model 3 in a profitable way at scale? That, that really, at the end of the day, is the ultimate question that Tesla shareholders need to be asking. And it's still not entirely clear, but I think, uh, obviously, you, you either trust Elon Musk or you don't. Uh, and th- there's still a lot of skepticism uh, when it comes to Musk. Well, and uh, as we say in sports, anytime there's trouble in a locker room uh, or any sort of cultural problem, uh, winning cures everything. And every, as you said, everything I just said about how troubling this is in the C-suite, you know, if they end up crushing their numbers this year, that solves a lot of the problems. Yeah, I mean, over the past year, uh, Tesla's stock has dropped a decent amount. It hasn't been a terrible performer by any means. I think a year ago, if you had said like all the different issues that would happen with Musk being in the spotlight and having these issues with the SEC, I think you probably would have expected. Tesla to be trading far below where it is today at about $300 a share. I think a year ago it was around 340, 350. So, you know, it hurts, but compared to other, you know, kind of high-flying companies, that's that's not bad by any stretch and still it's been a strong performer over the past 3 to 5 years. So, the 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 stock and the company have been resilient despite all of the the public drama that surrounds the persona of Elon Musk. So, as as long as they can get that Production, particularly the Model Three, ramped up at scale in a profitable way. Companies should be in good shape. Uh, before we dip into the mailbag, I got to say thanks to a listener, and I, I wish I could name this listener, but um, I can't because um, uh, he or she sent me uh, a package of coffee from Costa Rica, mm. which I have to say is fantastic. They they do coffee right in Costa Rica. So I've heard, um, and. Um, but uh, there was a handwritten note, and I, I couldn't quite make out the name. I think it's Cam. I, I'm, I'm not really sure. So, Cam, thank you for the coffee. I got it. It's fantastic. It's delicious. Really appreciate it. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from William Wadbrandt in Sweden. Uh, William writes I'm an engineering student who just acquired a chunk of cash that essentially doubles my portfolio size. Well done. Awesome. <laughs> it's always nice when a chunk of cash just hits you in the face. Um, he writes, I know lump sum investing is the way to go mathematically, but I'd love your input, especially in these times post-market recovery. Right now, I'm most likely just investing everything alloc- uh, allocated well uh, the same day it arrives. Um, uh, talk about your good problems to have. Like, hey, I came into this chunk of cash. How do I invest it? I mean, I'm sort of tempted to um, say that you know, look at whatever combination of stocks you own and what's on your watch list, and allocate accordingly. Um, because as we've said before, a lot of times the best investment you make might be one you already own. But what do you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't think you should feel pressure to buy new stocks necessarily. I think you you should be putting money in your highest conviction stocks and. As you become more experienced as an investor and you see your portfolio grow, which is a great problem to have, you can start to look at your overall allocations in the portfolio. Like if you already have maybe eight or ten or twelve percent of your portfolio allocated to a certain company, 
maybe you don't look to add to that right away. Or on the flip side, if there's a company you really love that's only 1% or 2% of your portfolio, maybe you focus there to bump up your allocation. And when it comes to whether to invest everything at once or have some cash on the side and kind of invest it over time or in certain increments, like say every month or quarter, really, I think you just have to invest however raises the odds that you will hold your stocks over the long term. So it's like there there are a bunch of different studies where you know it'll show like whether you invest a lump sum or invest on a monthly basis and in the same increments. Like all those studies will show essentially that the longer you hold your stocks, the better off you'll be. Uh, I know co-founder of the Motley Fool, David Gardner, he personally never holds any cash. He when if he has cash to invest, he invests it right away because you know historically you look at a long-term chart of the stock market, it's up and to the right. So that that Theoretically means that the best time to buy stocks is today if you can hold for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. But for some people, having some extra cash on the sidelines will raise the odds that they can hold their stocks as they inevitably go down in certain periods. And then you have that cash almost as a cushion or an insurance policy that you can dip into to take advantage of the buying opportunity when stocks do drop. So whether it's investing a lump sum or investing on some sort of regular basis, you just need to, I think, think about what is your tolerance for volatility because stocks will be volatile. There will be periods where your portfolio is down 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 percent. Does having cash on the side raise the odds that you won't panic when the market drops? Or are you the type of person who is resilient enough on an emotional level? To hold through thick and thin, even if you don't have very much cash, and I think your answer to that, or wherever you fall in that spectrum, should inform your decisions. But at the end of the at the end of the day, you just need to do whatever you can do to lengthen your holding period and raise the odds that you won't panic when stocks go down. And I'll just add, from an industry standpoint, you might want to look at what you've got in your portfolio and think: Are there any? Ginormous holes in terms of like if you look at your portfolio and you think to yourself, uh, I've got some good diversification across industries, but I don't have a dime invested in healthcare, which is an enormous industry, or you know I don't have anything invested in energy, uh, something like that. That's one more way to one more lens to sort of look through, uh, because that's something where you can say, all right, I'm going to dip in with this unexpected cash that's come my way, and and look to get exposure across even more industries. Yeah, for sure. I think. Uh, and, and for me, like everything comes back to building your portfolio in such a way that you can hold for the long term and that you are maintaining a long term perspective. So whether it's diversifying across different industries or companies, or even diversifying across time, so may, maybe it's just emotionally more comfortable to invest every month than it is to invest that lump sum of cash all at once. So really, whatever. Makes you more comfortable and raises the odds that you can focus on the long term because that's really what it comes down to. Like you can always look at a bunch of different studies that show like, well, it's best to do this versus that, but you're not going to benefit from stocks over the long run if you can't hold them over the long term. It really comes down to just buying and holding. So whatever you can do uh, to become more comfortable with that will raise your odds of long term success. Uh, real quick before we get out of here, um, your new role for those who haven't uh, heard David recently, um, your new role here at the company. You're heading up Motley Fool Asia. Um, you got a little news you want to break? Yeah. So within Motley Fool Singapore, which is our quote unquote mature business <laughs> within <laughs> Asia, still very much in startup mode. Uh, it's our, our 
Singapore operations have been around for just over five years now, but we're dipping into new territory. Oh, I thought that was. A, I thought you were taking a shot at David Quo's age. Oh no, 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 not <laughs> at all. I never do that. No, never. We never. love David Quo. Absolutely, David Quo is the man, as well as that that entire team over there. But uh, this month, actually today, we're we're launching for the first time ever a service outside, focused on a market outside of Singapore, and we're actually looking at. Malaysia, which probably, if you're based in North America, probably isn't a country you think about a ton. But there are a lot of different traits about Malaysia that make it really interesting right now. And David Kuo spent his entire Christmas vacation looking at Malaysia and ended up finding 15 Malaysian companies that he's very excited about for the long term. So, a few interesting stats and traits. About Malaysia. Uh, Malaysia has six times the population of Singapore, so about 31 million people within Malaysia. But currently, Malaysia still has a smaller economy or a lower GDP compared to Singapore. So, so you think about the long-term implications of that. If Malaysia can crack the code and continue this growth streak that it has shown over the past decade, there's probably a lot of long-term growth opportunity for Malaysia on a macro level, and then for individual companies to benefit from that growth within Malaysia. And In November, Bloomberg actually ranked Malaysia as the top emerging market. So, you're seeing a lot of different factors that are contributing to the growth that we've seen with Malaysia over the past decade, where its economy has grown at about 5% annualized, and recently it's even bumped up to 6 or 7%, it looks like there are a lot of tailwinds for Malaysia to continue growing in the years ahead. So, that was an opportunity that really excited David Kuo. And this new service is called Malaysia Moneymakers. And as I mentioned, it's really David Kuo finding his top. 15 highest conviction Malaysia based companies. And something that's fascinating about David Kuo, uh, he's actually never sold a single stock in his life. Really? Never sold a single stock. Because I was, you know, he and I were having dinner when I was in Singapore last month, and I mentioned, like, yeah, it's, it's pretty. Interesting, you know, Tom Gardner, Motley Fool co-founder and CEO, like he launched the Everlasting portfolio several years ago, and Tom basically committed to never selling a stock for a minimum of five years. And David Quo told me, "Well, I've actually never sold a stock in my entire lifetime." I'm like, well, that's that's kind of tough for anyone to trump. But David Quo will actually be investing hundred thousand dollars of his own money into these fifteen Malaysian companies, and he's made it really clear, like, I'm going to be holding these for the rest of my life and pass these on to my my children and my grandchildren. So, just a totally capital F foolish approach to this brand new. Uh, market for us at the Motley Fool. So, if you are interested in just checking out the the research that David and and his team have done, maybe explore the product. Uh, you can go to fool.sg/malaysia and can learn more about Malaysia moneymakers from Motley Fool Singapore. You know, we'll put the link in the description of this uh, episode, so uh, folks can just open up the description and just click on that link. Awesome. David Kretzman, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.